Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and we'll be reading from verses 6 through 10. And if you wouldn't mind actually just standing up for the reading of God's Word as we read it here together, and then I'll pray and we'll study it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather this evening to be encouraged, to be built up by your word. Lord, we ask that you would speak to each and every one of us here. Lord, that you would convict us of the ways that we are in sin. Lord, that you would encourage us when we are hopeless. Lord, we ask that you would now speak. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In 2011, the Seattle Seahawks played the New Orleans Saints in the NFC wildcard championship game, or I guess it was just a playoff game. And in this game, it was relatively close throughout the entire game until it got to the fourth quarter. And in the fourth quarter, the running back, Marshawn Lynch, broke a 70-yard run for a touchdown, and that sealed the victory for the Seattle Seahawks. That so electrified the crowd that it actually created an M2 earthquake in the Seattle region. So excited were the fans by this touchdown, this win. It was so remarkable. And we are coming to a text today that far exceeds that kind of excitement. We are coming to a people that are so loudly praising God that it's shaking the heavens. And you see that in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder crying out. So this song is as loud as a flood being unleashed upon the land. It's what you hear during the evening of a summer night of thunder cracking the sky. So loud is this acclamation, this praise from heaven. And we've already seen a song, haven't we, in chapter 19? We've seen a loud song in chapter 19. It's the song of the doom of Babylon. Yet this song is louder. This song is more bold. There are more hearts engaged in this song because it's the song of the redeemed. It's the song of the wedding supper of the Lamb. Its notes, its lyrics go all the way back into eternity past where the Father promised to His Son, I have a bride 
waiting for you. And so we have a loud song that starts it out. And what are they saying? Hallelujah, salvation, excuse me, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. They're singing loudly this song of God's sovereign reign over the nations. These people are singing that God is in charge. He is king. And I suppose you could actually spend an entire sermon studying the very first stanza of this song. The Lord reigns. Of course, if we've seen anything in the book of Revelation, it is the fact that the Lord, the Almighty, our God, reigns. He reigns over the wicked nations, bringing them to an end. He reigns over his church, protecting the church from all enemies from without and within. He reigns over all of human history, bringing everything about according to his sovereign will and purpose. The Lord, our God, the Almighty, he reigns. And while this is a loud song in heaven, it is often but a whimper by his people on earth. It can be difficult to sing loudly and boldly that the Lord our God reigns in the midst of suffering. When we look at the nations around us and we see all of the sin and rebellion of our own country, how can we say that the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns? Well, to those who have a clearer picture, to those who have a heavenly perspective, this is their song. The Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. And so this song of adoration gives way to announcement, as you see in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Joy in heaven bursts forth at the announcement that the wedding day has come. The bride has made herself ready. The marriage is now here. Faith has given its way to sight. Promise has given way to reality. There's no more waiting. Let us rejoice and exult and glorify God because the wedding day is now finally here. You can understand why this song is so loud, can't you? What a glorious announcement it is that the wedding day has come. The whole storyline of Scripture has been anticipating this. We begin in a garden where God dwells among his people, Adam and Eve. He walks with them in the cool of the day, but yet they turn in rebellion and sin against him. And so they are cast out of this unique place of God's presence. And it's all throughout Scripture, it's building up, it's anticipating. When will God dwell with his people again? Well, the time has now come. It's no longer future. This is the present reality to the people. And notice how this song directs our attention to the clothing of the bride in verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, Christ will receive his bride with great joy. The bride is a beautiful thing to him. Notice how this is contrasted with what we saw in the last chapter of the great prostitute who is adorned with all of this silver, 
and scarlet and purple, all of this elaborate decorations that the great prostitute dresses herself in to allure her victims into her midst. But here, the bride is adorned with simplicity, with simple beauty. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And friends, Satan always has a way of making Christ's bride feel as though she is not dear and precious to him. He points at the sin in our lives and says, Christ cannot find you lovely. You're a sinner. He points to the hardships in our lives and he says, Christ would never treat his bride this way. But here we find the bride as beautiful, arraigned in splendor. This is her beauty that's being described here. And of course, we know that this is a work of God. It's God who has accomplished this. It was granted to her to clothe herself. This wasn't something that the the bride did. This was something that God had done. He had clothed her. Just like a, a woman who is about ready to get married, she can't take filthy rags and turn them into a wedding dress. So it is with our own attempts to take our filthy rags of righteousness to try to turn them into something beautiful. God must do it. It has to be his righteousness. And so we see precisely that. But then, as the text continues, it says that this fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The gospel not only declares us righteous, but it also makes us righteous. It's still the work of the Spirit. It's still the work of God. But he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's why holiness matters in this life. Our striving for holiness will not go unnoticed. It will be a beautiful and a wonderful thing to Jesus. All of the attempts, all of the endeavors in our lives to to put on the Lord Jesus, that will be a beautiful thing to him. And Christ will say to his church, my bride has made herself ready and she has kept herself for me. And so we see this wedding song, this announcement of the wedding supper of the Lamb. But then we see a wedding invitation. When I uh, moved to Texas, I learned about the fine distinction between a barbecue and a cookout. Um, Growing up in Idaho, I thought that a barbecue was anytime you got a grill out to cook cheap hot dogs and hamburgers. And then a friend lovingly clarified to me that, no, 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 a barbecue is when you have smoked brisket, when you have ribs, when you have all of those kind of things. And he said, you, if you ever get invited to a barbecue in the South, don't turn it down. And I just recently got invited to a barbecue. And friends, I did not turn it down. Well, here in verse 9, we have an invitation that you don't want to turn down. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There is blessing for those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Joy unspeakable. That's what awaits those who are invited to this feast. Now students, I wonder if you've ever considered what heaven will be like wonder if you've ever even asked, will heaven be boring? 
Well, let me assure you of this. Heaven will not be boring. It's described as a place of blessing, of joy unspeakable. There will be fine foods waiting for you there. There will be fine drinks waiting to be drank up in heaven. That's what awaits those who have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We have feasts all throughout the Scriptures, don't we? The Passover feast, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of these different kinds of feasts all point towards this feast. Even the Lord's Supper as a feast points to this feast. The people of God from every age, from every tribe, tongue, nation, they are all waiting this feast where they will sit at the table of blessedness with their Lord and enjoy sweet communion and fellowship with Him. All of those who have had strained relationships with the members from the body of Christ will be in joyous harmony at this feast as they dine together with the Lamb. And I don't think it was merely incidental that in John's Gospel, the first miracle that John records of Jesus is the miracle that he performed at the wedding of Cana. You remember the story? The wine had run out, and so Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, please do something here. And what does he do? He turns water into wine. But do you remember what the master of the feast said about this wine? Ah, you have saved the best wine for last. And that's what we'll experience at this feast. We will all say, ah, you've saved the best wine for last. All of those small glimpses of grace and glory that you've experienced of God in this life, you will finally get there and say, ah, the best has been saved for last. And so astounding is this invitation that John cannot help but fall down and worship in verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's as if this message, this invitation is so great that John cannot help but fall down and even worship the messenger who brought it. And of course, the angel clarifies to John. He redirects his attention. He says, no, no, no. Don't worship me. Worship God. This prophecy, this story that you've now heard, it's all to direct you to Christ himself. See that Jesus is the spirit or the essence of this prophecy. It's all about him. It's all about the bridegroom. And so this invitation is powerful but not all will experience it. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 22 about a wedding banquet that the king throws for his son. Invitations have gone out, and yet the people did not respond. Second invitations had gone out, yet the people refused to come. And so what does the king do? He becomes angry and destroys that city. And friends, if if you're in here and you do not call yourself a Christian... The invitation has gone out. You have heard that Jesus Christ has died. He has won the victory. And if you refuse, do you not think that God will not be angry? 
few despise his beloved son, the most precious thing to him. So I warn you, do not ignore this invitation. And in that parable, there's a second warning. It's the warning to the self-righteous, to those who cling to their own righteousness, thinking that somehow they could get into heaven through their own good works. And what happens to them? Well, they're not wearing the wedding garments, and so they're cast out from the wedding banquet, thrown into the darkness. And so there's only one way into this wedding, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as we begin to close, I just want to remind you of two things that we should heed from this wedding feast. And it's first, it reminds us of how we became the bride. In most weddings today, the bride's family pays for the wedding. Occasionally, the, the groom's family will pay for the rehearsal dinner. But in this wedding, the bridegroom paid for it all. Christ paid the dowry with his own blood. Christ's spirit was the engagement ring that he gave to his bride. Christ prepared a home for us by going away. Christ did it all. And so we are reminded how we became the bride in this text. And of course, you're familiar with that great hymn, The Church's One Foundation. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Jesus paid for this wedding. He set it up. And in the moments that led up to his betrayal, Christ, on that great last supper that he spent with his disciples, he took the bread and the cup and said, this is my body which is broken for you, and this is the cup which is the new covenant in my blood. Do you remember what he said next? I won't drink this cup with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we might drink the cup of blessedness at this wedding feast. So we are reminded of this. Second, it reminds us how we are to wait during the betrothal period. Older writers, better preachers from history, used to always refer to the union that the soul has with Christ as the soul's espousal to Christ. They would describe our relationship to Christ in these marital terms. And so they would take a text, a book like Song of Solomon, and look at how this book relates to Christ and his love for the church. Uh, but sadly, in recent years, the Song of Solomon is really nothing more than marital intimacy for many. Uh, but there's much for us to learn by that kind of language. We are engaged to Christ in this life. He has gone away for us, and he has given us his spirit during this time of waiting and so we are to live in this engagement period expectantly. I had a friend that just recently got married. And I would always ask him, how many days until you get married? And from about 150 days out, he knew the exact day. And so as time got closer, he's like, he would just say to me, 22 days, man, 22 days, it's almost here. Well, that's how we are to wait for Christ's coming. We are to wake up every morning thinking, could this be the day? Could this be the wedding day? Because this is what our soul longs for. This is what we truly desire, to be in the pres presence of our beloved. 
Then secondly, we are to wait in purity. We are to keep ourselves for Christ. Satan would have you chase after many loves, but there, are, there is no lover like Christ. He's the one who paid the cost. He's the one who gave, he laid down his life for you. And so there is no lover quite like Jesus. And so we ought to get to heaven and be able to say, Lord, I have had no eyes for any other, but only for you, Jesus. And we will be greeted by that joyful phrase from Song of Solomon, I have found the one whom my soul loves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that there is a feast that awaits us. Lord, we joyfully and expectantly wait for it. Lord, I ask that you would push us all to long for this. Lord, that we would have this eager expectation for this day. And Lord, we even pray tonight, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in your name we pray. Amen.